This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. One of my favorite things about reading is being able to travel back in time and experience different periods of history around the world. One era I'm always drawn to is Regency England. The fashion, the romance. If that's one of your favorite settings, you'll want to start listening to Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Lord by Celeste Connolly, read by Ailey Beaton. Think Bridgerton meets Agatha Christie. Does it get much better than that? The novel centers around Lady Petra Forsyth, daughter of the Earl of Holbrook. She's a fiercely independent woman who bucks societal expectations, refusing to marry, and putting her life in jeopardy trying to solve a mystery. Pre-order Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Lord by Celeste Connolly now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zara-Bukinski, and today my guest is Sarah Johnson-Allen, author of the debut novel, Down Here We Come Up, which was the winner of the 2022 Big Moose Prize and just released from Black Lawrence Press. Sarah's fiction has appeared in Pink Magazine, Smoke Long Quarterly, and Reckon Review. In 2018, she was awarded the Marianne Russo Award for Emerging Writers by the Key West Literary Seminar for her novel in progress. In 2019, she received the Stockholm Writers Festival First Pages Prize. She's also been awarded McDowell Fellowships and an artistic grant from the Elizabeth George Foundation. Sarah Johnson-Allen, welcome to A Bookish Home. Congrats on Down Here We Come Up. Um, It was one of my favorite reads of the summer, and I'm so excited to get to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you liked it. So we kind of bumped into each other at the Newburyport Literary Festival, which um, if anyone is in the New England area, you know, you can check that out in the spring. I'll definitely be sharing information about it. Um, But you had mentioned you were also local to that area. I think you live the next town over from me and that you had a book coming out and I was so excited to get to check it out. And, you know, it was one of those things where it comes and you start and you didn't know quite what to expect. And then I just got completely addicted. I was so caught up in these characters. It was so thought-provoking, but moving, and just gorgeously written. Um, I had been in a little bit of a reading rut, and it just pulled me right out and um, got me so excited, so much book joy. So, oh my um, gosh, it makes I'm me just, so happy. <laughs> yeah, and it's just always so fun when um, you know you fall in love with a book and the author is kind of in, in your backyard. So that's, we really that's are really neighbors. fun as well. We are. <laughs> and, um, and I think I can share that listeners can look out for you um, at, the, at this year's Newburyport Literary Festival for, for Down Here We Come Up. So that'll be so exciting as well and that'll be the end of April but um yeah so congrats again and I guess for anyone who um you know isn't familiar with the book yet and it's just come out um can you tell us um, more about the premise and um the characters that we meet in the novel sure so this book is really about three different mothers who've lost contact with their children in different ways and the in the book, they realize they each have a way to help one of the other three women get their children back. Um, they've lost them in very different ways. One has given her child up when she was 17 for adoption. The other one, uh, that woman's mother has kind of alienated her own children. And then there's a third woman who has crossed over the border um, from Mexico and her children are still on the other side. And they realize they can kind of help each other um, get their kids back, but they don't like each other very much. They don't trust each other. And the main character is really this woman, Kate Jessup, and she's escaped this life um, in the rural south south with her uh, mother, who's a con artist, Jackie. And she, Kate kind of follows her brother when he gets into college up in Boston. But 
you know, about, I think about 10 years later, her mother calls her and says, I know where this daughter is that you gave up for adoption. And she kind of coerces her home. And when Kate returns after all this time away against her better judgment, she realizes her mother is running a safe house for migrant workers um, in this area of North Carolina, where there's a lot of agricultural demand for labor. And these three women's lives kind of intersect in Jackie's house, which is operating as a safe house for migrant workers and immigrants who are kind of passing through. There are so many layers and such a rich um, premise for a story and some of the most sort of unique, complex characters. Um, <laughs> I've read in a while that just felt so real. Um, I also love reading about, um, I love reading books that really dive into class differences and this whole idea of kind of blending in in different um, circles and um, different locations. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and kind of maybe why that was something that um, you were drawn to writing about for this book. Yes. So I think I have always been interested in issues of social class particularly in the United States, although I did live abroad um, in England. And that's like a whole nother kind of scenario of social class. And then you have different countries where that plays out different ways. But I've been particularly interested in that, particularly in the South. But also I now live in New England and, um, you know, towns that were like, say, like once blue collar, say mill towns, and then they get gentrified. And so I've always, always been interested in this. And I suppose part of that, you know, social class has is related to a lot of things. So there's like sort of a money aspect to it. But I think it probably started for me very young because my father, so my grandfather was a tobacco farmer and he died before I was born. And so my father grew up, you know, working on this tobacco farm. And eventually my father was the first person in his family. He went off to sort of like a local Bible college and um, he kind of never went back. But we would go back a lot as a family. So he never moved back there I was born, I lived in Raleigh, North Carolina. But when we go visit where he was from, um, I always felt like they, it was like a joke. It was like, oh, here come the city slickers. And it was sweet. Like they were just like families teasing each other. But I was like, why are we different? Like, why, why am I different than where, you know, my family kind of came from? And it had to do with education. And so many, 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 many decades later, as I learned about intersectionality, um, you know, your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your religion, like how all how much money you make, um, your your education level, all how all these things fit together. I don't think I was consciously trying to write about that in this book, but I realized looking back, um, even with something like the care, one of the mothers, the third mother who is from Mexico's name is Maribel. Well, she has a college education, like she's an English teacher. So on the su- southern side of the border the U.S. border, she is living a middle-class life, but once she loses her ability to stay there and enters the country without documents and without citizenship, her entire life, and you could say her social class, drastically changes. And so I was very interested in these sort of verticals of social class climbing um, and then falling. So Luke, who is Kate's twin brother that she follows up to Boston for college, he at a very young age is like, I am getting out of here. This sort of agricultural poor area with their con artist mother, who's always like pulling some, you know, scheme. And he gets the ultimate social class, like first class ticket out of there. He gets into Harvard. And as someone who grew up in North Carolina, but then moved to the Boston area in the last 20 years I've lived here, I, I 
I didn't really know about Ivy League education. Like, I mean, I guess, or I don't know. I never thought about it, but I, I would see, I would see people get hired because it's like, oh, well, they went to Harvard or like mm-hmm. this, like it's a ticket. And, and I'm not saying it's not deserved. Um, in this story, Luke is really, really smart and he is determined and he is all the things that you should go to an Ivy League school. So anyway, I was very fascinated with that, like what education can do. And then I also was like learned just about the history of Boston, about um, like the Boston Brahmins, who were sort of the original families that were given power in land long, long ago and like started, made a lot of their money in the um, slave trade, the rum trade and the opium trade. And yeah, I'm kind of like losing my train of thought, but like I was so fascinated by that. Um, But then there's so many different I think it's fascinating because there's so many different um, ways that it gets explored in the novel and that Boston Brahmin aspect. I was interested too with um, like the inherited, like, I don't think you, I don't know if you'd call it a mansion, but the very like fancy house in Cambridge and like that social side of things was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, as you were kind of going about all this, you have all these different um, settings and um, kind of class experiences, even, you know, um, you know, from Boston down to North Carolina, down to like the uh, Mexican border. Mm-hmm. Was there, even though some of these locations were, um, you know, familiar to you, were, was there research you needed to do for this book? Um, like I know you're mentioning kind of looking into the Boston Brahmin families, but were there other things um, that you had to do research on and, and things that maybe surprised you as you were kind of delving into that? Um, yeah. So I feel like, again, I am not an intentional writer. It's not like I set out, I, I've been listening to your podcast and a lot of other like podcasts, like, you know, for like, I don't know, over a year, just really listening to how writers do things. And people are talking about their index cards and they're like, I need to be more like that. Um, but I don't really plan anything out. But I think what happens is I I pick up on something like my uncle owns a farm where there's like turkey houses and hog houses. So yeah, like I have been in those, like he used to pay me like 20 bucks to pick up dead turkeys like Kate does. But now obviously in the book, it's talking much more about like people who have to work that as their main job for income. So I had been there. I knew what that smells like. I can describe it, but I ended up reading like, for example, there's a book called wastelands by Corbin Addison And it's actually all about the hog industry in that area of North Carolina. And like, I just read that this year or started reading it this year. And my, my head was like exploding. Cause I was like this, I live this, I watched this happen with my family, but I didn't know why it was happening. Mm -hmm. So it was like, even things I had seen, even things I knew about, I still tried to do some research on to make sure I wasn't getting things wrong. And of course um, being like a white American or white writer from the United States, I, I did not, set out to write about migrant workers or immigration from Mexico. But I learned, like, as I was writing this over many, many years, focusing on that part of North Carolina, you cannot tell a story about that part of North Carolina and ignore the populations who have moved moved there in the last, say, 20, 30 years. So I was really careful, or I tried to be really careful with that. Um, reading a lot of nonfiction books by journalists um, who are talking about immigration and the other thing going beyond research uh, was hiring like a sensitivity writer, Alejandra Oliva, um, who wrote Rivermouth that just came out this spring. And she was a translator on the border for 
um, people seeking asylum. So it was like research, but then also asking people who would really know, because like you can do as much internet research and reading as you want and you can still get things wrong. I had two friends read it as well. So again, I think this is research, but in a different way. And I had one who's from the area of Mexico and she was like, this, you're, you're describing the setting proper. Like I had been to Juarez, but like a million years ago, eating tacos and like shopping, like not like this Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, as a white person going into that city uh, in the nineties would be really different than what I'm talking about in this book. And she said, you know, you, you describe the border well, like I can tell you've been there, but you're not understanding like the action you're comparing it to us cities. There is no comparison. And like, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know that. Or even I had a friend, um, she works with immigrant populations, which is why I had her read it. But she went to Harvard and she was like, oh, um, no, this class, it would never be intro to U.S. history, my friend. Like, this is what it would be called. So in all- that's so interesting too, yeah. Right. And so in all aspects, or, or for example, it doesn't matter, I don't want to give away the ending. She said something like, there's no way- this brother would do this in the end. And I changed the ending. Um, there was, so there were a lot of things that I either did research on my own just because I'm sort of curious and I love to like delve into stuff, but also had to like pay friends and then pay a sensitivity reader to kind of give me feedback to make sure. Um, yeah. That, that I was getting it right. And the one thing I keep saying this, which is really funny. This book um, deals with the growing of marijuana of which I know nothing about. Like, I feel like all my friends and co- colleagues are gonna be like, oh, yes. Yeah. But it's like very funny because I don't know anything about it. <laughs> like, I know nothing about So that was probably, that's the thing I know the, I think I researched the least because I was afraid, even though it's legal in Massachusetts, I would be arrested because I'm a child of the 90s. <laughs> They're well, looking I'm, at all of your internet that's search. That's the thing you probably got Sorry. wrong, but. I tried real hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to just ask a little bit more about one thing you mentioned about, because um, I, I would imagine other writers um, are interested in doing this as well, and just kind of what the process was like for you in finding and hiring a sensitivity reader and kind of what kind of guidance you gave them for reading and, like, do they mark up the book? Do they write a response after? Like, what, what's the process like working with a sensitivity reader? I'm sure it's different for different people. The way we went about it is I think one thing I will say is I I go to enough like literary conferences like AWP, even like the Newbury Court Literary Festival. I remember talking about these issues like people. I think for the last few years and with very good reason, the art world in general um, has been really thoughtful about like who can tell story like who who has the right to tell a story um who should tell a story if you're if you're going to tell a given story are you considering the impact that it might have what might you get wrong um and so i knew that i was really careful not i did not do a first person pov on a character from mexico although actually maribel and i have more in common than i do with like kate as far back to intersectionality as far as being college educated teachers with three children. <laughs> like we have that in common. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was worried about with Kate too, because I didn't, I didn't grow up rich. I grew up middle-class, I guess, but like middle-class before like income inequality. Um, but I'm afraid I got poverty wrong too, like with Kate. So I just, yeah. So I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I have, I was really mindful about getting things right. So, but the one I thought, you know, the one you really, you don't, I do know, I should say carefully that I do know people who came across the border um, long ago and assimilated into 
communities and became part of families, but don't have the privilege of citizenship. So I didn't know people, but like knowing some people is not the same as having someone read your text. So when I got my book deal, I said, we have to hire a sensitivity reader that has to be part of my contract. And Black Lawrence Press was really supportive of that. And I appreciate that um, so much. And I think, I think the publisher asked some people and then I like found a website. I think I Googled, we love Google, right? Um, It was like, here's a list of sensitivity readers and here's what they read for. And so, and again, back to sort of different aspects of identity, I found the person that I thought um, would be the, the right person to read this. So I was very, very lucky that she accepted. Um, and she gave me, she did do markups in the um, manuscript, but she also like wrote like kind of like a qualitative or like a summary of what she thought um, was working and what wasn't. And then it was like, I can give you two small examples. Um, but the first, ex- well, actually, the first example was she knew so much about immigration that even my reading on the internet, she's like, listen, this is like, this is in the Bush era, but you're sounding like Obama era. <laughs> like, how would I know? Mm. I mean, I guess I could, right. That was so helpful. Like, and she identified where that was happening. Um, and so that was like, yeah, so that was a big thing. And then even my friends who I, I still paid them as sensitivity readers, but I remember realizing um a character like Maribel would have a passport. Like I didn't know, for example, that if you live in Juarez, you can get in-state tuition at the University of Texas in El Paso. Like there's a, there's scenarios where you can do that. Kind of like in Massachusetts, huh. you can get in-state tuition to go to Maine. I was just looking at that last night. Um, so I didn't know that. And, but what I did know about the border was that people used to cross it very easily for work. And then there became a period where you could not cross it. And that's when this book takes place. So like people were cut off from their work, but talking to my friend, I realized, Oh, right. If you were still middle-class or wealthy, you would still, you could still cross the border and you would have paperwork. So I had to like rewrite part of what happens so that that character would have no longer have access to her paperwork for certain reasons. Um, She would lose her life. So again, those are things that if I had not asked someone to look at it. And also I did this over so much time. It wasn't, I mean, it was painful. I had so much time (laughs) to like have things evolve. Um, But I I was really big on listening to them. And there was like one thing I remember Alejandro Oliva said something and it was about like what a mother, again, I don't want to give anything away, but it was sort of like this character wouldn't do this. And I was like, Okay, well, for plot reasons, I really need this character. (laughs) I really need them to make this choice. And part of it had to do with this theme of like what mothers will do for their children. And I was like, okay, I hear, I definitely hear what she's saying. However, one thing that attracted me to the story was I think people can, when they're comfortable in their lives, it's very easy to say, I would never do that. But if one thing I liked about writing this is there's not a character in this book who does something I don't think I would do if I was not in their situation. Like, I think I would do every single one of these things, no matter how bad, if I was in those situations. That's one of the things I love about the book. I feel like you're just really walking in these different characters' shoes and and thinking about the decisions that they're making and, yeah, what you would do in the same circumstance and just puts you right there. I'm so glad it comes across that way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you kind of mentioned things 
taking a long time and I, I now can't remember where I read this, but you, you um, said in an interview that you had taken a fiction class at 19 and a um, writer had, had said to you that you probably would become like a capital W writer, but that he said that you wouldn't have anything to say until you were 40. Keep writing though. It will take that long to do it right. I, I'm just so fascinated by this whole interaction. And um, if you can tell us a little bit about that. That is such a weird story in that when I, I've always been really, really good at writing. Like that's what I do. That's the thing I could do when I was five and part thanks to my mother kind of encouraging it. But I don't know why I didn't prioritize it as like my actual life for a really, really long time. Um, I still struggle <laughs> like mm-hmm. prioritizing it. But I it was like a communication major at Guilford in North Carolina. And for some reason, I'm from Raleigh. And I took an NC State like class, probably just for, to get in-state tuition. I don't even know why I did it with an author named Tim McLaurin. And he is an amazing author. Almost no one knows about him. Sometimes North Carolina people will. And he was a very interesting person who had a bunch of different careers and lives before he basically started writing like literary Southern fiction. And I discovered him when I was a teen. I probably took it because he was teaching it actually now that I think about it because I knew who he was. And I had read him before along with like Jill McCorkle and these like kind of like hero like writers when I was really young. So he had been a Marine. He was very, not eccentrics isn't exactly the right word, but he would like bring snakes to class, like in pillowcases, like eccentric, fine. Um, But yeah, eccentric again, is not more like um, country boy or something. (laughs) I don't know what to call it. And when he said that to me, it was like the greatest compliment of my life to have sort of like this high up in my mind. And he's a brilliant writer say that to me. When I told that story, like 20 years later, Somebody, and with for good reason, was like, why would he say that to like a young woman? Why would he say you don't have anything to say until you're older? Because certainly there are a lot of writers who are writing brilliant work in their early, early mid-20s, whatever age, right? So that I kind of had to go back and question. I was like, oh, is that the patriarchy telling me I didn't have anything valuable to say? <laughs> Ooh. But that kind of messed me up for a while. But then I was I was um, actually in Raleigh um, on my book tour and talking to people in a Raleigh bookstore. And I said, you know what? I think he meant because, you know, like you I mean, I'm pretty intuitive. Like people do say shit to me all the time. Sorry for swearing. Like, well, you should just wait till your kids are grown up. Um, no, this is like what I was born to do. So what I went to grad school for. Do you tell someone with an MBA to wait till they're, you know, 65 to start their like their career? No. I got just got mad. So I got distracted. Oh, so I know what that feeling when someone tells you like what you're doing is like small. And that I don't think was what he was saying. I think because his life was so varied and he didn't really come to writing later. I think what he was trying to say is that life gives you like complexity, like life gives Mm -hmm. you um, the ability. And we know this from like a psychological standpoint, like my, you know, 22 year old students are brilliant, but when they come back five, 10 years later, they're like, I didn't realize what I didn't understand. So I think that this book didn't get published. I started it in 2006, which is when it takes place. Um, It didn't get published for 20 years for a variety of reasons. Most of them being me being having trouble focusing on my work and because of social class, having to focus on how am I going to get money? How am I going to have health insurance? How am I going to pay my rent? Like, you know, I, That's took a lot of people will understand that, right? Um, especially when this doesn't bring in 
it, like if yeah it, yeah I don't have to explain it to anyone right it's not going to be lucrative so you kind of deprioritize it when you're always worried about bills or payment or whatever wait I got lost in my thoughts oh so it took a long time so that but I'm sorry that I didn't prioritize better um, I had seven years where I didn't write at all because I had at that time, I think I only had two kids, but I had started a full-time teaching job, which I'm really lucky to have, but that took all my time. Um, But I think, and then of course there's the publishing industry and it took a while to get an agent. And once I had an agent, you know, we went through a few revisions and then that, like, that's a whole nother story. But I think what happened, so like all that's going on, think about what Tim McLaurin said this summer when I'm making, you know, revisions on what's really going to go to press and I have rewritten this thing so many times. It's like disturbing. There are hundreds of pages that don't exist anymore. The story is so much better. It's so much stronger. It is like about the things that I actually wanted to write about that I, I don't know. Like I, I'm, I'm happy now <laughs> that <laughs> it took this long. I mean, I wrote another novel and the time it took to write this because which was with my going to be with my agent again soon because it just took that long to get this one right, which is maddening. But also I'm now grateful that I, cause to write about these kind of issues fast, I think would have been a mess. Does right. that make sense? To have, yeah, no, I think it makes total sense. And to have um, like the space and distance to, to think about some things. And, um, but that makes me wonder too, you're talking about another novel with um, your agent. I was going to ask if, um, if there is a second book, in the works or kind of like what your writing life is like these days as you kind of are switching toward more of like the promotion hat for down here we come up. Yes. So I think the first thing I will say as someone, so I have a full-time job because I have to, but I also choose to live in an expensive part of the nation and I have three kids. Okay, fine. Um, but I have a really, really hard time writing during the semester, like a really hard time. I don't know. I get up at six and I'm like doing whatever I'm doing. And my kids are getting older, which I saw your kids just went to school for the first time. Like you're both in school. (laughs) Yay. This is like life altering. It is life altering. Full full day for most days, old kids, which is pretty. (laughs) So things like that. Or for me, it was like, okay, summer, January, when I'm not teaching, I can't do it in my house. I have to leave. I have to go. So McDowell was a huge deal, but even like fine arts work center in Provincetown, um, places that I can just go for like a week or two. I'm a binger, like on all things, I'm a binger. Mm -hmm. So I'm a writer. Now having now going through this book promotion process and like working and which is fine. This is like my dream. It's great. But I don't, I have a, I mean, I realized you can't just wait for January. You can't just wait for June because what happened was not this last June, but the June before my agent came back with my second novel and she was like her, there's her second read through. And she's like, love it. This is working, but this, I still need you to revise for this. And these aren't little things. These are like big existential questions of the book. Right. And so that week, while I was actually at the Fine Arts Work Center, I get her feedback. I'm like, cool, I've got two weeks. I shall sit down and I shall work on this revision. We're going to get this book out because I think the first one is dead. And that's when I heard about Black Lawrence Press when I was in P-Town. Um, wow. But that's a year and four months ago. And I'm here to tell you, I think I've gotten back to the second novel that my agent's like, cool, yeah, let's send this out. But you got to do this. You got to fix this. Like a year and four months has gone by and I barely touched it. Now, 
it's not like I'm not doing anything. I've been revising down here. We come up like crazy. Like you said, um, kind of the book promotion stuff, which again, I love, but I guess that does take some time. Um, a lot of time, I think. Yeah. Right. So I I have been, this is like a personal goal and I'm not achieving it yet. It's just like, okay, how are you going to fit it into your weekly life? Because the writers that I know that write a bunch of work, they're writing, if not every day, they're finding, and, and you know, they have kids, they have parents, they have to take care of, they have obligations, they have work they have to do. And they're still finding that time. It's not my personality, but I'm, I'm my goal is to work towards that. Um, I just think that's helpful to hear about and like how it works in different um, like seasons of writing. And um, I, I just always think it's helpful to get a window into that. Um, well, lastly, I would just love to hear if um, there are any books uh, that you've been enjoying lately, you know, what your reading life has been like lately, if there's any books you want to recommend. Um, sure. Yeah, I feel like I love all the stuff on Instagram that talks like they're the memes about books you buy but haven't read. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, like, we all have those. <laughs> big stacks. So I have so many big stacks from um, Black Lawrence Press. Like, I feel like every time a new writer comes out, like their their titles are crazy. And like the descriptions are amazing. So I bought like every Black Lawrence Press book. Um, and then a bunch of them I haven't gotten around to reading. But I did re- read um, Here in the Night by Rebecca Tarkowitz, which was a cool short story collection. Joanne Hart. Um, I'm like, why am I blinking? I just did an event with her. I'm blinking on the name of her short story collection. That's one of the best short story collections I may have ever read. Oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it, but I'll remember in just a second. Um, Look it up. Let me see. So, so lots of uh, stuff because a lot of really cool stuff is coming out from independent publishers. Is it um, Highwire Act? Yes. Highwire Act. Okay. It literally just came out this week. She's a Gloucester writer. She's quite oh, accomplished. Nice. She's written a bunch of other stuff. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that reading. I read Here in the Dark by Megan Lucas, which was like really gritty. Like I love dark and gritty, but even I was like, oh my. Um, <laughs> like kind of Appalachian Southern crime like lit, I guess. And then also on that vein, I haven't read David Joy's new book, but when when these mountains burn, he's a North Carolina writer kind of in the, well, I don't want to say in the tradition of Tim McLaurin, but like, again, like, working class um, regions of the world where there's this intersection of gentrification and like money from the outside. I'm very interested in, I was re- rereading some Jane Smiley cause she was one of my favorite writers and I'm going to a conference in Western mass actually this weekend where she'll be there. Morgan yeah. Talt is going to be there, which I'm very excited about. Um, like night of the living res. He's the author of that. Yeah. And then the one that I just finished yesterday is um, Namrata Patel, who I know was on your show. Oh, I love her. That book was awesome. I felt it was so rainy yesterday, as you know, and I just felt transported. <laughs> yes. Her books are such great, like escape and oh. great cast of characters. Yeah. I saw you guys were doing an event together. It looked so fun. We are tonight. So um, I feel like I've been doing a lot of reading for quote unquote work, but yes, like the, I was like, I just feel so stressed out. I have to read this whole book. I was like, Sarah, it's raining and your job today is to lay in bed. <laughs> like this is as good as it gets. This is a good thing. <laughs> well, that sounds yeah. awesome. Um, well, I just so hope that people um, pick up down here. We come up. I also think it would be a really great book club pick if people are looking um, for the next book for their book clubs. There's so much to discuss. Um, I think it would be wonderful for that. And just best of luck with all the promotion and with the second book. I will 
definitely share um, with listeners when the Newburyport Literary Festival is coming up. Um, give all the details for that so maybe um, any local people can go see you there. Um, and I'll link to your website if you want to keep an eye on your events and things. And just thank you for taking the time to come on. I appreciate it so much. I can't wait till we see each other again, my, my friendly yes. neighbor. Yes, wonderful. Um, well, thank you, Sarah. Um, it's been such a treat. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.